If you were going to compare all the rides in life, how many think a roller coaster is a pretty good analogy for family? Would you say that's pretty good? Well, that's what we're going to get in today is what keeps me up at night, family. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know how difficult it is in life just to navigate every day uh, the struggles that we face with our families. And Lord, it does keep us up at night. But Lord, truly, it is the greatest ride ever. And we thank you for our families. Uh, even during the difficult times, even during the agonizing times, Lord, we praise you for our families. So Lord, I pray that you be with me this morning more than anything else. Help me to just be an encouragement for all parents and children and grandparents that are here this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Family. It's what keeps us up at night. It's interesting. I read about a guy. Maybe you did too. He spent $100. He paid this guy to uncover his family tree and find all of his roots. And then after he found the family tree and filled in all the blanks like you do and all the roots, he paid another guy $1,000 to cut the tree down. Did you hear about that? We all know what it is to face the struggle with family. I read another quote that said, my family is temperamental, half temper and half mental. <laughs> and then I read this poster, and I love this. It says, in this house, we are thankful. We give second chances. We give hugs. We laugh a lot. We do loud really well. We are real. We never give up. We love. And we know that even here this morning, there are some of you that this is your battle right now. The thing that's keeping you up right now is your family. And you've had some agonizing nights probably this week regarding your family. So this morning, we're going to look at a, a really powerful word. Uh, my daughter, Danielle, who's here this morning visiting from Moody, uh, this summer, she's kind of pointed this out. Uh, and I thought this was a really powerful concept, so I wanted to do some more digging on it. And it's the word prodigal. Now, when you hear the word prodigal, usually, I know I've always thought, Luke 15, total rebellion. But really, the definition is wasteful, reckless, and here's the key, extravagant. Now, there's three ways to measure prodigal thinking and living. And uh, what happens, and all of us need to understand this, prodigal leading leads to prodigal action, which leads to total rebellion if left unchecked. All of us in this room have been prodigals. I can tell you that right now because of excess. Because all of us, all of us have had seasons in life when we've pursued something, we've committed to something, and we've taken our eyes and we've taken our commitment away from God. And at that moment, guess what? We're a prodigal. Here's how it always shows up. Your time, or second of all, money, and then third of all, time and money. And when we go through those seasons, those can be dangerous times. I'd like you to read this scripture with me. It's 1 Corinthians 6.12. And this is, a, it's interesting. Paul makes this powerful analogy. And let's read this together. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Do you understand what he's saying there? Matter of fact, in some translations, you may have it, it says lawful. In other words, he's saying there's a lot of things in this world that are lawful, but that doesn't mean they're beneficial. And if through extravagance, we start pursuing those things, and it begins to take our time, it begins to take our money, and eventually our time and money, we are on a dangerous path. We've all been there. We are right now facing, all of us, probably somebody in our life that we love, and this is where they're at. 
There's something that has taken their relationship away from God that is actually extravagant. And we need to understand we're here for one another when we go through those seasons, when our loved ones go through these seasons. A few years ago, something that seemed really innocent, had a group of buddies, they said, uh, hey, John, there's something coming on on the internet. I think you're going to love this. It's called fantasy baseball. And I said, well, how's that work? So you get a bunch of buddies together, you have a draft, and then it doesn't take any time at all. Well, that was about 10 years ago or so, and um, I can just tell you that if you get very good at this, it takes a lot of time. And I would spend my evenings in the summer, and I'd get out my iPad, and I would convince myself, this is just a hobby. It's really not extravagant. I'm not spending any money. But man, I was spending a lot of time. And this is how bad it got. About two years ago, I was in a tournament towards the end of the year, and you're picking players off the waiver wire, and the waiver wire opened at 3 a.m. Guess what I set my alarm for two nights in a row? 3 a.m. My kids more than once said, Dad, I think this thing's got a hand on you. It does not, you know. We've been there. And this spring, I got the invitation, and I remember for just a second, I'm like, I can't wait to do this. And then it's like, I just felt God's like, you cannot do this anymore. This is, and here's the word, beginning to master you. And when something begins to master us, that is prodigal. And we need to understand how powerful it is when people are just falling into that trap. There's so much collateral damage. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk about a prodigal son, and it's probably not the prodigal son that you think I'm going to talk about, because I'm not turning to Luke 15, I'm turning to 2 Samuel, chapters 13 through 18. If you'll turn over there, you may have heard his name, his name is Absalom, and he's one of David's many children. As you know, David had many wives, and he had many children, and he also had many concubines. David's life, in many ways, King David was out of control. But Absalom was a pretty interesting son. And so we're going to talk, first of all, about this guy's strong suits because he had some pretty amazing strong suits. In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 14, verse 25, I want you to turn over there because this tells us about this kid. It says, In all of Israel there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head... To the sole of his seat, there was no blemish to him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the scriptures, there's many times I cannot relate with the characters. You know, like Samson, I cannot relate with Samson. You know what I'm saying? The strongest of all. I read of Solomon's wisdom. I cannot. I can't compare myself to Paul. I mean, I think of the amazing things. But I got to be honest, I can relate with the benefit. This guy here, how many of you guys can relate with this? You're handsome and you can't. Get your hands up, guys. Come on. You stud muffins. You, you know. I saw a thing yesterday, a little banner. It said, my husband, he's 20% stud, 80% muffin. So anyway, maybe that's some of you guys, okay? Now, I cannot relate with being brutally handsome. And I cannot relate with that. But did you ever have a buddy that was brutally handsome? Did you ever have to live with a buddy that that's their story? I had a, I had a buddy like that. He was my best man at my wedding. Uh, his name was Tim Dudley. Uh, I love it now because he's bald. But in high school, he had this jet black hair. He was 6'1", quarterback on the football team. And back in the day, I know some of you came out, guys used to use hair dryers. Do you, do you guys remember that? Some of you guys that don't have any hair remember. And Dudley didn't even need a hair dryer. He would, like, wash his hair and he'd go. And it would just all fall perfect. 
And we were at camp one year, church camp. We were playing basketball. You get there early because the girls get there early. You know, and you have to pray. So and we're all there early, and we're all playing basketball, trying to impress the girls, and they're never impressed with basketball. And uh, we're in this big open-air chapel, and Austin Dudley goes, you know, I'm going to quit playing basketball for a while. He goes up on stage. This is the other thing I hated about him. He could play music by ear on the keyboard. He took one year of keyboard, and that's all he needed. And he'd play by ear, and he'd, he'd learn love songs and Benny and the Jets. And so he'd start out the love songs, just start playing, and all of a sudden the girls start making their way to the stage. And then they'd all start singing Benny and their Jets. And I counted seven high school girls around the piano. And we're standing there, and we go, we hate Dudley, okay? <laughs> Guess what? That's Absalom. This is the kind of guy that is charismatic. This is the kind of guy that is good-looking. People are drawn to him, and he knew people were drawn to him. Second of all, he was loyal to his family. This is one of the saddest stories in the Old Testament. His half-brother uh, plotted against Absalom's sister, and she was beautiful, and by a half-brother, she was raped. And Absalom burned with anger so deeply that he spent two years plotting how to kill his half-brother. But he was so fiercely loyal to his immediate family, and he was a leader. If you were to go through and read chapter by chapter, here's what I noticed. Every time Absalom starts anything, there's always just a handful of people, and that number always grows. If you want to know what a, if a leader is a leader, I can tell you exactly what happens. There's somebody, when you turn around, is following. And this guy had a lot of folks following him. But what's dangerous is he was living the life of a prodigal. Everything in his life was excessive, which became destructive. See, prodigal thoughts lead to prodigal actions and left unchecked will devastate your life. It'll derail your relationships. It will de derail your relationship with God. And that's exactly what happens with Absalom. And if you really want to know how devastating his life turned out to be, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 15. And I want you to see how he really knows how to work the system. Starting in verse 1, it says, In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early. He would stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. And whenever anyone came in with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call him out and said, What town are you from? And he would answer, Your servant is from the one of the tribes of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were the appointed judge in all the land, then everyone who had a complaint or a case would come to me, and I would see that he gets justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out to his hand, take hold, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so, look at this, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And you drop all the way down to verse 12, and it says, And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's follow, following kept on increasing. You see what this guy's doing? You talk about working the system. He stands in the gate where he knows everybody has to come through the gate, 
and he asked one question, are you from Israel? And as soon as they said yes, boy, he would turn on the charm. Boy, wouldn't it be great if you had a king who was approachable, like me? And wouldn't it be great if you had a king who wanted justice for you, like me? Oh, let me kiss your hand. No, no, no. Let me kiss your hand. You see how he's working that? And it doesn't take long after one after another says, that Absalom is the not. You know, when's the last time you saw King David? He's way up there doing whatever they do, but look at this guy. And I'm not kidding. Is that the best looking guy? You know, they can't wait to run to the gate and talk about this guy, Absalom. But he is falling so deep into a prodigal lifestyle that he is completely, completely running from his father, and he's running from God. Listen to this quote, which I absolutely love, by Kay Arthur. If you tolerate sin in your life, that sin will not only take you farther than you wanted to go, it'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and it will cost you more than you thought you would pay. When you are living a prodigal life, everything else other than just pursuing whatever it is that's in excess doesn't matter. And when you start pursuing that excess, what's going to happen eventually, you're going to end up in a place you never dreamed you'd end up. Throwing money at something you never dreamed you'd be throwing money at. And some of you right now, that may be what you're battling. That there's something that has control of your life and you might as well be in jail because it's like bondage that it has a hold of you. You may relate very well to this that you realize that this thing has just completely captured your heart. The good news is you can break free. The bad news is if you don't get a handle on it, it will destroy your life as it destroyed Absalom's life. All Absalom wanted to do, honestly, was completely, completely devastate his father's heart. He just wanted to do everything he could to destroy his father. And I do mean everything. Matter of fact, in chapter 13, he murdered his half-brother Amnon. In chapter 14, it says that he took one of the messengers from David, his name was Joab, and he completely burned down his field. And then in 2 Samuel 16, now get this, he found his father's concubines, and in broad daylight he went on a roof to have sex with these women so that the entire nation would know what he was doing. Now I wonder where he got that idea to have an affair on a roof. Interesting, isn't it? He did everything he could to bring his father down, and yet it led to his own death. Matter of fact, it's interesting what Absalom did is when he gained a lot of popularity and he started building up basically a military, he decided that he would take over the kingdom. And so word got to David. Now David's pretty sharp when it comes to military action, and he realized that there was momentum, but he also knew exactly how to handle it. And he remembered all those days with Saul, and David, it says, escaped. And as he escaped, he put together a plan. He knew his son was going to rally thousands of troops, but David knew. He knew how to organize the troops. And when Absalom came at him, he organized it in a way that he knew there was no way he was going to lose. He had one request. I don't care how many troops you wipe out during this rebellion, make sure that Absalom's life is spared. And what's interesting is Absalom got to the point after this terrible battle that he was running for his life, he's riding on a donkey, it says, and this beautiful hair that he was so known for, he got caught in a tree. And you remember the field that he burnt down, Joab? 
Well, Joab found him, and Joab did not spare his life. Matter of fact, he took out javelins and just took him out. And it's interesting, David was actually upset that they killed Absalom. And Joab literally went in to David's chamber and said, you better knock it off. You better quit crying for this son that you gave no time to. You better quit crying about this son that honestly, nobody knows you care about him until right now. And these men that you've surrendered to, they've given their lives. So knock it off, get to the city gate, and you let your soldiers know you do not have your act together. And quit acting like you're this great dad, you're not. Now, he could have been killed on the spot, but David listened to him. And before his men, he had to confess, listen, you've been willing to spare your life, but here's the honest truth. David's life was completely broken. Because this morning, I don't want to just talk about a prodigal son. You need to realize in this story, there's a prodigal father. And here's what I found in years and years of ministry. When you hear the word prodigal, we always think of the prodigal son because we love that story, don't we? The prodigal son comes home, and the father runs to him, and that's a representation of God running to us. But I got to be honest, all, all these years being in ministry, I've dealt with a lot of young people that are rebellious, and parents are broken, and parents can't sleep at night because their kids are doing outrageous things, and their kids are making really bad decisions. But you know who else I spend a lot of time with? A lot of adults are saying, my parents are the ones who are out of control. It's my parents who are the prodigals. It's my parents who are making really bad decisions. See, there isn't just prodigal kids. Would you agree we have prodigal parents? Seriously, folks, it goes both ways. And when you look at the life of David, is it any wonder that Absalom was out of control, completely out of control? Matter of fact, you don't have to go much farther back in this, these chapters. If you remember from a few weeks ago in 1 Samuel 11 and 12, the whole story of David and Bathsheba, how do you think this kid learned all of the things that he learned? He watched his dad. He watched his dad, and in humiliation, actually, Absalom, for four years, removed himself from David. But when he needed his dad the most, I want you to listen to these two sections of scriptures. 2 Samuel 13, verses 21 through 23. Let's look up this on the stage. When King David heard all of this, and what he'd heard is his, his son had murdered his half-brother. When he'd heard this, he was furious, and Absalom never said a word to Amnon, Neither good nor bad, he hated him because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep keepers were at Baal, near the border, he invited all the king's sons to come to him. Hold that thought. Now go to 2 Samuel 14, 28. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. That's David. You see what happened here? Absalom was crying out to meet his dad. Two years went by, David just ignored it, and finally he met with Absalom. Another two years go by before he ever sees him again. That's not being a dad at all. And you wonder why this kid was so completely out of control. See, the bottom line is, I'm going to have Pam come up if she could just sing this, just a lyric. The bottom line is, all of us know the damage that it's done, whether you're a prodigal child or whether you're a prodigal parent, when there's time involved, and all of a sudden there's just this, they've, they've cut it off. It's like there is no more time spent. When I was in uh, junior high, it's funny how you'll hear a song and you remember 
exactly where you were. You ever have those weird songs that comes on the radio and you're like, oh man, Lan, I remember it. I was eating a grape snow cone and you know, you can remember exactly where you were. I was in the bowling alley with my buddy. It was, uh, don't even know why I remember this, it's 1974 and this song was the number one song in the country. And I've asked Pam just to sing the chorus, see if you remember this song. And the cats and the griddle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man on the moon. When you come on home, son, I don't know when, but we'll get together then, son. You know we'll have a good time then. How many of you remember that song? It's been used, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard it referred to in lessons and sermons um, over the years that I've used that song, because it's one of the most convicting songs I've ever heard about a father who realized he had been so busy he ignored his son that when his son grew up, the son ignored the dad. It just breaks your heart when you think about this time that God has granted every one of us. And really, the most important thing to remember that we can give our kids, that we can give our parents, is what? Time. It's the, it's the greatest gift that God has given every one of us, is time. Now, I don't know if you knew the, the singer that was Harry Chapin, and when he sang that in 1974, uh, very few people knew who he was, but that became number one. And Harry Chapin also just was passionate about serving those that needed food. So he wanted to do everything he could to feed the hungry. And uh, he was constantly going, 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 going. And uh, he had his own family. And one of the very last conversations that his wife remembers having with Harry Chapin was about his time and his kids. And the conversation was something like this. You know, Harry, you're doing a lot of good things, and you're busy all the time. But honestly, you got to spend more time at home. I mean, it's just getting crazy here. And he said, you know what? i got to finish up this concert. And when I get home, we're going to reschedule some things. She says, okay. And that was the day that he had his accident, that he died. And when I heard that, I thought, you know, it's easy to say we need to spend time with our kids. And it's easy to say we need to spend time with our parents. But we need to step back sometimes and realize the power of the time that God's given us. I'm so thankful for so many of you this week uh, who sent me texts and emails and uh, just encouragement uh, with the funeral that I had Wednesday with the, the Gibbons family. And it was honestly one of the hardest things that I've ever been through in my life. I mean, uh, if you can only imagine losing your child and your husband with, in one phone call, that your entire world changes. And some of the staff came up to me uh, before the funeral, and they said, John, we want you to know uh, we're going to be in the balcony, and we're praying for you the entire time, because we have no idea how difficult this must be. And I can't tell how hard it was, but just knowing that they were up there. Well, when the, the funeral was over, and the family, uh, the church just did an amazing job, and the family you know, left, and as the cars were pulling away, I started to walk back to my office, and I mean, I can't, you've all been there. Everything in me, it's just like I had nothing left. I was just completely drained. And as I was walking to my office, Claudia and Ken Mitchell, uh, they were sitting there in her office, and I just went and sat down, and uh, I just said, oh, my land, I just, I've got nothing left. And uh, Claudia said, um, I'm just so thankful that you were a part of this, and I'm just so thankful we were praying for you uh, and that we could just help you, because we knew how hard this was. And they also know I'm a crybaby. And so they were praying, don't lose it. You know, they really did. 
And, uh, and I said, well, Claudia, I, I just got to be honest with you. That really was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And she said, you know, an interesting thing happened during that entire funeral service. I said, what was that? And she goes, I was in the balcony. And she goes, I started watching dads. There's these dads all over. And she said, throughout the service, I'd see the dads reaching over, and they would pull their wife in, and then they'd reach even farther, and they would pull their kids in. And she said, that went on the entire service. And I'm like, you know, that's a, that's a really good reminder for me. So dads, let me just say this to you. It's never too late. And you're never too old. Your kids are never too old to hug them, that you need, and they need to know you care about them and that they're priceless in your eyes and they're going to let you down, but guess what? You're going to let them down too. And just mandate that in your life that I have an opportunity to take my time and cherish the time that God's given me because I'm not just saying this. Time is precious and we have no guarantees. Not one of us have a guarantee. We can make a difference if we just will honor what God's given us, and that's time. I believe with all my heart that's how you spell love. It's T-I-M-E. It's time. It's time. As we sing our invitation, we're going to do something just a little bit different, and I don't want you to stand. But as, as the group is singing, I just want you to bow your heads during these few minutes. I want you to pray. First of all, what's going on in your life right now? that you need to give to God concerning your family? What's heavy on your heart with your family? And so during this time in silence, just sitting there, pray for your family. And then would you pray for a family that God's laying on your heart? Because my guess is there are families on your heart right now that you know families that are desperately, desperately aching, aching. And would you just lift up prayer for your family? and the family that God lays on your heart as they sing this song.